Warm greetings, Joymongers. Welcome to this week's episode of Joyfully You Life with Dr. Petrina Clark. You are really in for a treat this week as I'm speaking with Dr. Rodney Glasgow, an innovative educational leader, published author, renowned keynote speaker, diversity practitioner, and current head of school at Sandy Spring Friends School. Rodney is a graduate of Harvard University with a joint degree in Afro-American Studies and Psychology, and he also holds a Master of Arts in Organization and Leadership from Columbia University. Our paths cross as fellow cohort members in the George Washington University's Executive Leadership Program. We were part of a threesome for our oral comprehensive exams, and Rodney and I actually attended commencement together, where we were formally awarded our doctorates in human and organizational learning. I can honestly say that that doctorate program was one of the most challenging things I have ever done in my life. Having this kindred spirit be a part of that journey made it absolute joy. And I'm not just saying that because the name of this program is Joyfully You. It really is true. Rodney has a wicked sense of humor, and I was often prone to laughing fits because of his perfectly timed text messages. Dr. Glasgow, welcome to the podcast. Well, it is good to see you, sister. So glad to be on. Yes. So I was trying to remember how we actually put our comp group together, but I couldn't really remember like how that got started. Do you remember? Well, speaking of just joyfully being and joyfully you, we had so I'm going to start from the beginning. <laughs> Please <laughs> Because, and talk about joy, there are certain people that you meet that you just feel drawn to naturally. Right. And for me, for those people, I can remember almost like a visual memory of when I first saw them. So I can remember when I very first saw you before we even spoke and we were in the computer room, like that old school computer room yeah. <laughs> at GW. And I was like, that sister has an energy. It attracts and it pushes away. It's one of those like, come close, but don't come close with no mess. <laughs> exactly. Okay. True, true. No lies detected. <laughs> right. And so I endeavored to meet you and we did. And then we ended up very early on going out to dinner and bringing Tom out with us. And okay. then we went to dinner every week and at one of those early dinners. And we had, shameful that I forget his name, but our... Our fourth, who ended up not making it through our program. Bruce, um, right? Bruce. We had Bruce with us, and we would sit at dinner for hours and let, they would sometimes they had to kick us out. <laughs> I know, we would close the restaurant was closing. <laughs> and that, you know, to think about the energy that we had both as scholars, but also as human beings. And that's the synergy you wanted in the comp. So we knew it might have been November. Our program started July. By November of that first year, we knew we were the group. Right, right. And oh my goodness, all the consternation around that early bonding, right? <laughs> because you know what, though, when I'm going to tell the truth, <laughs> as you always do, when some folks who are not as joyful meet folks mm-hmm. who are truly joyful, mm-hmm. there's one of two reactions either how can I get some of that or how can I stop them from having that because I can't have it? Mm. And we ran into both kinds in our program. <laughs> yes, we did. Oh, my gosh. Yes, we did. That's an interesting perspective because that absolutely is the reaction that happened. And I do think that when people endeavor to operate in an energetic way, you know, from energy, 
that happens. You know, you're, you're receptive to other people's. You can kind of see, check things out and you want more of same, you know, like mm-hmm. attracts like good, bad or indifferent. Right. And I just, I remember just having so much joy whenever you, Tom and I would get together. I mean, it was mm-hmm. just no matter what was going on. I remember that one time I came to cohort weekend and I said, I just came to tell you guys I quit. And both of you guys cursed me out and told me to sit down and open my laptop. <laughs> That's the kind of love you need to get through something like that, you know? Mm-hmm. So remind me what your dissertation was about, right? So it was based in the social identity theory of leadership, as well as the concept of gendered racism. So okay. it was sitting in that intersection. And it was about prototypicality of leadership and how African-American males in predominantly white K-12 independent schools, i.e. me, (laughs) navigate being non-prototypical leaders and leading groups of people who largely don't reflect who they are or where they come from. And the idea is that real leadership, not real in the essence of the others are fake, but real in the essence of deep and profound leadership is gathered when people who see themselves in the leader And they want to follow that leader. They want to work on behalf of that leader because it's like working for themselves. If you don't have that because people have these barriers to seeing themselves in you, and race, of course, is a barrier to that being that kind of a mirror, how else do you accomplish that? And that was my dissertation. And and also, you know, the theory is, well, then you find ways in which you share identities, right? You don't go for the identities that separate. You go for the identities that connect, and that's how you do it. But at the same time, what I felt like was, well, that can also be an assimilationist tactic. How do you hold true even to those identities that are important to you as they could be divisive, but also still connect, right, with people across those differences versus dismissing or trying to downplay those differences? And so I was really interested in how do, in this case, Black men be successful in leading and still center their Blackness, if that is the center of their identity. And so I interviewed 16 Black men for whom race was an important aspect of their identity, and they were not interested in downplaying it, but they were interested in connecting across it and leading across it, and how did they do it? And so what would you say, you know, as a part of that process, we have to give our sort of findings and Mm -hmm. conclusions and recommendations, but what would you say now, three years out from having initially defended that work, Mm. is you think your most important personal insight about this uh, idea of Blackness, identity, and separation versus connection. And it goes to this concept we're talking about today of joy. And in fact, Cornel West just said it on a TV program I was watching the other day, the ability of Black folks to have joy and love despite some of the most dismaying of circumstances. And the extremes of that, right? Slavery, Jim Crow, those are the extremes of that. But the everyday in the workplace is an example of that. How do you show up on Tuesday when you know they came at you on Monday? (laughs) And you still want to show up for them, right? right? That is ingrained in our DNA and who we are. And so one of the most important findings was these men saw themselves as a part of that deep legacy of Black folk and Black men who showed up regardless, showed up in spite of, showed up even though they knew it was stacked against them because they also knew their own resiliency to break through those walls if they just persisted. 
And so they talked about, I am doing my part in the civil rights movement. If I leave the space, right, this space is less because I have left, right? I am an integrator. And as an integrator, there are going to be hard times, but part of my joy is my perseverance to hard times. So what a take it is on obstacles in the way, right? I'm not going to let them get me down. I'm going to let them motivate me to come back tomorrow different so that I can move through this barrier. And it, it was powerful. And at the same time, they spoke to this deep need for self-care. Mm. So at work, I'm showing up resilient. I'm showing up strong. I'm showing up persistent. And when I leave work, I've got to do something that replenishes <clears throat> because I'm also leaving drained because I'm trying to put so much positive into an environment that in so many ways is stacked against me and I'm doing it. But to get up to do it tomorrow, I've got to have some joy on the back end. Right. Did they share anything with you about most impactful self-care techniques? Laferne and I talked about this when I did my interview with her, and it seems that really is an important theme that joy and self-care are deeply interconnected. Mm -hmm. That's just virtually not one without the other. Right. So any insights on important self-care rituals that can be especially helpful? You know, I'm just really impressed by your overarching work in this space, this diversity inclusion space, with a heavy emphasis on equity. And we're going to talk about that in just a bit. But any insights on important rituals for self-care for people who are really, I was going to ask you this a little bit later in the program, but you know, for folks who are, are kind of waging this daily battle of one sometimes, mm -hmm. you know, how do they do that? Like, what's super important in terms of self-care in those situations? It's really, you know, because it's self-care, it's so personal to who they were. But some, some major themes were around both connecting and disconnecting. Mm -hmm. So when I leave that space where I may be the only or one of a few, I want to go to a space where I get to be the norm because that's when I can breathe. Where I don't have to translate myself, right? Or do a different version of myself where I can be understood even without words. So their families were places of that. Their friends were places of that. Then there was also, and I just need moments where it's just me and them. And I am not dealing with anybody else because I've dealt with everybody on that. And so also being able to carve out true spaces for self. And, and as people of color, part of was so ingrained into a selflessness that can also be self-defeating, right? I always have to show up for everybody around me. I believe that's ingrained in our DNA, right? Because that's what this journey compelled us to do. What was enslavement really about was your ability to show up for everybody at a diamond, at request, and to never say you couldn't. And so we have channeled that through the generations in very different ways, right? And now it shows up as I have to always be prepared to show up for somebody in my life and giving yourself permission to go off the grid. And you are excellent at that, right? <laughs> be like, I will call you tomorrow, but not today. <laughs> well, you know, and as the so queen important. of a thousand flowers blooming, you know, I literally have to be able to do that. And I think as I've gotten older, I've gotten better at doing it because I mm -hmm. think there is this idea, especially when you're like the one the only one that you want to be accessible and available. Mm. But all of that showing up in the world requires energy. Right. And there have to be things that replenish so that you don't operate at a deficit mm. all the time. I, I often say to, you know, family and friends that, 
you know, there's profound wisdom in the flight attendants telling you to put your own mask on first before trying to render aid and assistance to others. Mm-hmm. We're just going to have a bunch of dead folks on the plane if everyone's running around <laughs> trying to help other people, right? There has mm-hmm. to be some attention to self-care there. Right. And, and you know, when we talk about people of color in particular and leaders of color in particular, so many of them are that leader for their family. Right. And so the whole families flock to them the same way whole organizations flock to them. And you can easily exhaust yourself trying to live up to that Superman, Superwoman, Superperson ideal that feeds your soul in some ways. Right. I feel powerful. I feel full because of what I'm able to do with what I've been given. And at the same time, when do I get to turn it off? It reminds me of, you know, I love Beyonce. Yes, and she has, I think any of her songs are little known, but she has one that is lesser played called Save the Hero. And the chorus of it is, who's there to save the hero after he saved the world? Mm-hmm. And a comment on life as Black folk. Yeah, absolutely. So I love the work that you do with kids and this idea that the children absolutely are our future. So I want to talk a little bit with you about the work that you did. I mean, you've founded so many different initiatives <laughs> and, and things. But talk to me a little bit about your DMV conference. Mm. So the DMV conference has a couple of hundred students from independent schools across the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area. It's tailored to high schools and we do have a middle school version of it. And it's meant for kids to have a space where they can talk through some of those pithy issues that are both happening out in the world, right? all these national issues, but that also show up in their schools in interesting ways. And they don't always have the spaces to process. And what we're seeing in independent schools now, if folks are tracking educational news, is the big call out of alums of color, current students of color, employees of color, parents of color, saying to these schools, we've been your integrators. And now we are tired of being mistreated and being put up in the magazine when you want to you know, show your forward thinking. And some real heavy discussions. There was a huge article in The Atlantic about independent schools as bastions of elitism, but then also this notion of this indoctrination into anti-racist regimes. And I I say those words in particular because that's how conservative, quote-unquote, views are portraying this diversity and inclusion work that we're doing in schools. We're indoctrinating students to the left. And so independent schools are powerful because disproportionately the leaders of the world come from independent schools. Mm-hmm. And, and so the opportunity to educate them into different ways of being leaders and into their humanitarian purposes as leaders. But at the same time, independent schools were grown out of white flight and white backlash to the integration of public schools. Right. And so you've got this interesting cross-section and that's why the work needs to be done because you're asking institutions built on elitism and classism in particular, that is, you know, the twin-sisted racism, to suddenly be different than what they were founded to do. They were founded to replicate the racist structures, the classist structures, and the sexist structures. And we're now asking them to do the very opposite. And so you have to constantly be watching for where the ground that you were built on will swell up and compel you to go back to what you were. It feels like the issues that are kids and and teens, the issues that they have to deal with are just so much more profoundly impactful than Mm -hmm. anything that we had to deal with as as kids and teenagers. 
And I would say proliferation of social media and access to news and information is certainly contributing to that. What do you think are the biggest differences between kids now and kids 20 years ago? And what do you think the implications are for this group of kids in terms of their transitioning to young adults? I love that you dated it as 20 years ago because it, it is exactly the point at which you may even go 40 years ago, but, but 20 years sounds about right. In terms of before that, kids were indoctrinated into all kinds of adult mess. Imagine being a kid in the era of slavery, a kid in the era of Jim Crow, mm. a, a little girl before 1920 and the era of women can't vote. They were taught things as kids. Right, no <laughs> That right. the folks who were kids 20 years ago simply weren't taught because we had that window in our timeline where we at least put our mess underground enough that we let kids be kids and didn't try to indoctrinate them into this adult business of oppression, at least not overtly. Right. And then you saw the swing back. And the swing back has been enormous because kids soak this up like a sponge. You know, when you and I were kids, we would go outside in the daytime and not come back home until the lights went off on the street. And and what that meant was you had your own world that you could concoct, but it also meant the world was at least relatively safe enough that you could do that. There's not a parent out there now that would send their kid outside for eight unmonitored hours. (laughs) (laughs) One unmonitored hour. Are you kidding? (laughs) And and dare you to come back in. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Wasn't that true? It's like, if you don't stop coming in and out of this house. <laughs> you let my air out and you and you interrupted my soaps. <laughs> coming so in here smelling had, like Philly goats, right? Right, smelling like the outside. And so people had this moment of time in our country where we were living as people, right? And, and it was a very different time for kids. And then when the backlash hit, Easily kids picked up on it. And we also started to re-indoctrinate kids into the systems of oppression. What you're seeing as some of the outcomes of that is more and more kids coming out as LGBTQ, even beyond LGBTQ, like really expanding our notions of gender and sexual identity. You've right. got kids who are pushing at the racial boundaries about what does race mean and where does race live, right? You've got kids who are connecting across all kinds of differences in these schools. And that's part of what the problem is for the old school generation is we were never designed as a country to do that level of mixing because the kids didn't know any better, right? They were going across it. And then all of a sudden it was like, we could work our ways out of our ingrained privilege if we allow our kids (laughs) to actually just see another kid as another kid. And so we have put on them the weight of the world. And what is beautiful about this particular generation of kids is that in the midst of all of that, they've learned so much more about politics, the way government works, social activism and political activism, no matter what their views are, whether I agree or disagree with them, right? You've got kids across the spectrum of political views, but what they do know is I have a right to express mine. I've got to watch who's sitting in the White House. I've got to watch these primaries. I've got to watch these voter rights. We weren't watching that stuff as kids. No, (laughs) didn't have any interest in it. Didn't even know we should care about it, right? Had no idea we should care about it. And so in some ways, we wait to see what are the fruits of those of raising a generation that is going to be so politically savvy. And we haven't had that 
in a while. Right. I think it's definitely going to be interesting. All right. So let's do some differences. I want to get your take on a couple of differences in concept. So difference between equity and equality. And there's a vast difference. And in equality, well, sometimes I don't know if I even enjoy the word equality <laughs> because it's a misnomer, it right? Equality is I'm going to give everybody exactly the same and I should give everybody exactly the same. And on the surface, it sounds wonderful. But when you think about everybody's circumstances difference, even if we look at just at the family level, if you treated all your kids exactly the same, and gave them all exactly the same things, I would argue you have misparented because your kids are different and they need different things. They want to be recognized for their differences. They want to be treated differently. Being treated differently and mistreatment, those are different things, actually, mm -hmm. right? Right. Um, to be seen for who you are and to be treated for who you are is different than to be mistreated because of who you are. And so equity gets us more to that point of, I'm not going to give everybody the same, but I am going to give everybody what they need and at the same level of meeting that need. I'm not going to try to meet your need more than I'm meeting the need of the kid next to me. And in that way, at the end, everybody will have the same possibility at the same result if they have the same goal. That's really what equity is. So it's so much more powerful. And if we look at the history, and there's a little bit of a misnomer in history, when we get to something like the civil rights movement and people think, well, the 1960s and this move to integration was about disbanding the separate but equal and to make things equal. And it was like, it was really to make things equitable. It wasn't to say we want to have the exact same things as the white communities have. It was to say, we want to have our needs met at the same level that white communities are having their needs met. And some of the mourning that came out of the mistake of equating equality and equity was the dissipation of historically Black colleges and universities and the loss of all those beautiful Black neighborhoods that integrated and then gentrified. Right. And so we really lost key elements of our identities in this notion that equality is where we should go. Love it. All right, one more. Difference between advocate and ally. And you know, it's funny because I'm even moving beyond the word ally. And so, <laughs> because ally there. has a passivity to it as well, right? Yeah, take us But, but an advocate is somebody who shows up almost with the superhero cape on. I'm going to either fix it for you or I'm going to advocate that it gets fixed for you. I'm not necessarily going to get my hands dirty in it, though. That's what I think about an advocate is someone who comes in and because of their power, they're going to suggest that somebody else who has the power does something differently. And that's, it's important. Advocacy is an important process. It does not mean what people think it means though, in terms of, I don't have to do much changing of myself to advocate for someone. I just have to recognize that I have the ability to speak my voice in a way that somebody else doesn't and to use it. Normally I do it at no cost to me. Allyship is quite similar and that allyship is when you need me, call me, right? And then I'll be there. I think more about partnership. We talk a lot. People use stronger words like co-conspirator. I don't know that I like that word because it makes it sound like you're doing something underhand. Yeah, it's got a <laughs> negative doing, connotation to right, it. Right. Yeah. You're doing something exactly what you're supposed to be doing, right? So I like partnership or even what I call a practitioner. And a practitioner is someone who does their own work and does their own practice. And through that, that's how they effect change. They don't wait for somebody to call them. They see systems of inequity. They see moments of inequity. And they're out there 
disbanding it, whether anybody's looking or not, whether anybody asked them to or not, because they were a practitioner, right? They've almost taken that doctor's oath of, A, make sure you do no harm, but B, you have the responsibility to respond each and every time you see a medical incident to the best of your ability. And that's what an inclusion practitioner does. What would be three things you could say, you know, kind of building on this idea of a practitioner that the average person could do to make a meaningful difference in making their small space, the world, however big or however small you want to make it, to make the world a bit more just? I think it begins with love and connection. And so there is a part of it that's about taking down the laws and changing the laws. We put a lot of energy into that, and it's important because it affects people's logistical outcomes and quality of life, but it does not change people's minds and hearts. And history will tell you that we changed any numbers of laws for the good, and people are still walking around racist, sexist, classic, homophobic, transphobic, right? Because you can't actually legislate the way somebody feels. You can legislate behavior. You can legislate outcome. But if we're really talking about making human-based change, then you've got to connect. And that's why I think allyship is is an overused word, because in order to be an ally to me, you got to be in such deep relationship with me that you know what I need and you're giving me what I need in that moment. And it's actually not about you. I think a lot of times allyship is about the ally feeling like, see the good work I'm doing and their own feel goods around their ability to transgress not necessarily what they're helping someone else to do. And it can disempower the person they're being an ally to. But when you're talking about really radical change, then it starts with changing the way you interact with people, changing what you know about the world and changing the ways in which you bring people into the space. And so I think all the time about how can I expand my circle even further? And I've got a pretty diverse circle, but I'm, yeah, I had, and, and the universe, <laughs> the oh universe will bring it to you. Yeah. I had heard a long time about this religion called Baha'i. And I had always wanted to know what it was about, but I had never met anybody who was Baha'i. And, and I did not do so let me go read a book about it, right? That's what I should have done. I just kept saying I'm ignorant. <laughs> but the universe actually, just this month alone, I met three and had deep conversations with three people from the Baha'i faith, wow. just in different connections. Right. And that's the real work. And it started with me saying, A, tell me about yourself. B, creating a space where people felt comfortable to talk about something as deep as their religion. And then C, me being okay to be vulnerable to say, I have always wanted to know about that. Can you help me to understand? And not in a way that made them feel like they needed to teach a class, but just give me a little kernel and then I can go and connect and thread some myself, right? I have to do my own work. But I think that's what we're talking about here. And that's why a lot of the projects that we call the United States is a failure in some ways in that we have tried so hard to put everything on the changing of, and the creation of laws, but we did not put our time and energy into the creation of human beings who understand how to expand their capacity for love and justice in their own daily practice, right? I've seen people who would go to a Black Lives Matter rally or a Women's March, and they don't know any Black people, <laughs> And I say, no, like, really, no. Like, they may talk to a Black person, right, who they think is a friend. That friend's never been to their house, right? Right. Then they go and they're sitting in the C-suite and the table's full of men. And the next time they do a hire, they hire another man. They don't say, 
No, this one, if we got to look deep, let's look deep. But there's no reason why a woman shouldn't be in at this table. And I mean, we won't stop until we do. If they don't even connect their own personal responsibility with what they're out there shouting and espousing. Right. Oh, that's deep. I love the point you make about the importance of love and connection. I had the opportunity to go to one of Michelle Obama's book tour stops. Mm. And one of the sayings on one of her shirts was, it's harder to hate up close. Mm -hmm. And this idea that if we can just bridge the illusion of separateness, the illusion of different, the illusion of divided, and allow ourselves, I love what you said early in our conversation about how Kids just want to see each other as other kids. It's not until we start indoctrinating them into this nuttiness around differences that they start Mm -hmm. seeing that, oh, there is a difference here. But before that, it's all love. Absolutely. Because they're connecting on such a pure level. And in meditation, we talk about this concept of beginner's mind where you approach a situation as though you don't know what the outcome will be. You don't know what to expect. You're open. You're allowing. And I love bridging that with this idea of allowing new and different relationships to surprise us, to expand our sphere of humanity and humanness so that we are actually connecting in meaningful, tangible ways, not these superficial ways that you know, tend to fulfill the advocacy requirement or even the ally requirement to your point. I I, I feel you on the, it's a little deeper than that, right? It mm-hmm. needs to be a little bit more than that. I was having a conversation with someone who, you know, we certainly, when George Floyd was murdered, we had mm-hmm. a lot of conversation about how can this happen in America in 2020? How is this still a thing like this disbelief, mm-hmm. particularly among a lot of white people and their insistence that they're not racist and then Mm. challenged to be Mm. anti-racist, which goes to your point about the hire, right? Mm -hmm. It's like we are perpetuating a systemic circumstance that is not creating equitable outcomes in -hmm. terms of our spouse desire, right? Mm -hmm. To be an inclusive organization. So talk is cheap. Let's dig deep. Right. To the work, right? <laughs> right. And in that way, how could George Floyd not happen in America, right? right? In a country that has built itself on the privilege of white male supremacy, and that in the face of a deep challenge of that, how could you not have the retaliation against Black bodies and brown bodies and yellow bodies that this country was Found and I and I don't know if these were founded, right? Because when they found it, it was somebody else. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. But, <laughs> so from the beginning, it was a project about let me show you how powerful I am. Right. And if you don't recognize it, I will show you how I will make you recognize it. And that's how you end up with the knee on your neck. Let me show you and everybody here watching that if you ever thought you were better than me, you're gonna learn it that. Right. That yeah. is America. And yeah. we, we do that out in the world. Like, what's our favorite thing to do? Let remind countries of this fallacy of we will beat you if we need to. Right, right. So please don't make us, right? <laughs> we are peaceful until. Right, right. I didn't want to have to do this, but. I didn't want to have to do this. And at least other more aggressive countries, what do they do? They go out and they show their military out. We're going to have a parade and show you everything we're going to use. <laughs> <laughs> 
just to make sure you don't get confused about what's going on here, right? Right. <laughs> but make no mistake about what our philosophy is. Aggression is our philosophy, those countries are saying. We're saying peace is our philosophy, but we have the capacity to be aggressive. Right. We're lying to ourselves as a nation. Right. And I think that that's front and center. And I think that's a lot of what we're having to grapple with. And I think that, you know, for me, I'm encouraged by the willingness to be more connected. I know it's challenging. I know it's difficult because indoctrination is a real thing. You know, we both have this element of social identity as a part of our dissertations. And that indoctrination is real. People construct Mm -hmm. whole entire identities around it. And when you start talking about having to unpack that stuff and get back Mm -hmm. to the essence of who you are and then recreating yourself almost from scratch, it's a lot of work. Right. It's right. exhausting, it's fatiguing, and it's easier. We're, we're actually biologically wired. You know, I do this with the neuroscience stuff. We're biologically wired not to go back and undo all that stuff because the brain says, hey, stupid, we learned all that stuff for a reason. <laughs> We've kept you safe until now. What do you until think you're now. doing? Until now. And, you know, the brain hates, to your point earlier about the newness and approaching things as new, the brain hates to do that. The brain Absolutely. wants to approach everything as, I know exactly what's happening here. Let me compute how this is like what we've done before so right. that you know exactly what to do to get the outcome that you want. And in that way, a lot of things that we think are emotional are really cognitive. Exactly. Right? The outcomes of the cognition become emotion. But, but cognition comes first in yeah. that our brain is saying, this is like all those other times. I think about, and I thought about that this weekend, so funny, so about my mother. And my mother is very much afraid of dogs. And she's got her own reasons for being afraid of dogs. And when you, you met my mother, she ain't afraid of much. <laughs> I love your mom, Rodney. <laughs> but like afraid, afraid of dogs and will run. And so when I was a kid, guess who was afraid of dogs? Me. And I remember running. And you know, when you run from a dog, what does the dog do? Oh, run right. after you. Yeah, that's right. Attack. <laughs> and thinking that's right. Either t- or, or thinking that you're playing, right? That's right. also how dogs that's play. That's true, right. Together. So, right. But, but when you are running out of fear and you look back and the dog is running after you, you think the dog is chasing me. I remember sprinting as a kid, like all like a good mile because this dog was in the neighborhood, right? And I was supposed to be outside until the lights went off. But the dog came and I, was, I started running. The dog is running after me. I ran all the way home and didn't breathe until I got home. <laughs> the dog wanted to play. So I have learned through my exposure because I went to independent schools and, you know, folks like to bring their dogs to campus and do all kinds of elitist things like that to show them what they're supposed to do. <laughs> so, so I got indoctrinated into being at least okay with dogs. And now people have this thing because they have this huge backyard. They want to bring their dogs to my house. So now I'm no longer afraid of them. So yes, flip, bring them over, do whatever, right? right? So just this weekend, we had, I had two folks come over for a slumber party, two of my good girlfriends. And they both brought their dogs. And one of the dogs was new. She's just learning her owner and just learning like, you know, this new life. And she has a jealousy. And so when the other dog would get petted, she would bark. Or if I went to go hug my friend, she would bark at me. And so that aggression, as comfortable as I was with the dog, now at, at times the dog would be sitting on my lap. But if that dog were to bark, immediately my fear would come right back up. Mm. Right? And I'd have to remind myself, you don't have to be afraid of the dog. Right? The dog is barking from some other stuff, but you actually 
are okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so imagine, right, folks who are trained to be afraid of certain kinds of people. Right. Now that's because your deep. parents also teach you that. Right. And then you could be in close proximity to those people all the time. You could live next door to those people. You could eat at Thanksgiving with those people. But if they show you something that then takes you back to that fear, boom, you have, you're going to have that reaction. If you don't catch it, right. you don't breathe through it, then you are going to either retreat or it's your fight, flight, or freeze response. Right? Right. And I lived that this weekend, right? And the dog is, is so little. But in my mind, <laughs> but in that it was amazing? a... Pavlovian. Yes, exactly. (laughs) The power of the brain. And we underestimate it. You know, it really is intended to keep us safe, but we have to, when it's important, when it matters, do the work to override some of that. And to your point, I don't know that we ever move completely past it, but what we can do is cultivate the ability to slow down the reaction to the response. And to know where it comes from. Yes. So I had to know, right, that I am afraid of dogs because my mother was afraid of dogs, not because dogs are scary or I should be afraid. Right. And that's the human work that we haven't done is, so how did you get to where you don't like or you are afraid of or you don't respect these certain kinds of people? Where did that come from in you? And you have to know that so you see when it shows up so that you can suppress it and work past it because... Most of our isms are from our own irrational fears. That's right. what racism is, an irrational fear, yeah. right? Of people of color that therefore triggers your need to oppress them. Yeah, I, I think as you were talking, Rod, I was even thinking the comment you made about like 20 years ago where we weren't overtly indoctrinated. It was all subtle and kind of behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is probably what is creating some difficulty when we try to talk about things like privilege. Mm-hmm. Because if this is all I've known, what are you right. talking about, right? It's mm-hmm. it's a natural reaction to defend, no matter what, what point on the spectrum you exist. Right. And so that's interesting. I just kind of had that insight. I want to be respectful of your time, and I promised you mm-hmm. that you know I would keep it under a certain amount of time. And you probably anticipated, first of all, I love the way you've woven joy into our conversation (laughs) today. I love that. I know you would do that. But what does it mean to you to be joyful? I put joy right alongside peace. And I I think joy and peace are, are lovely married partners. And when we think peace, we often think of a stillness. And peace can come off as still. But peace could also be sweating it out on the dance floor. There's a peace in that. But laughing until your stomach hurts and you fall on the floor, there's a peace in that. Peace isn't always still. And so I think that joy and peace have to go together because you can't actually feel the experience of joy if you're under stress, if you're not at peace. Peace is the condition under which you can become joyful. To me, joyful is this elation that is just so right here that you can't help but to let it all out. It just bubbles out of you. You know, when somebody goes into that good laugh, it's like they can't even contain themselves. Like so you joyful. used to make me do in class. <laughs> <laughs> Where you just, no matter what's going on or what's happening, I'm going to laugh at this. <laughs> right, right now. I love that. I hadn't even thought about it. You know, a lot of times we do think about peace and joy and maybe me to a degree, because there is this like tranquility that kind of yes. tranquil undercurrent that I have. But we know Joy in motion, 
peace and motion. Yes. I love that. Mm -hmm. I'm going to work that into a future episode. I can talk about it because sometimes people do think it's always about stillness and quiet. That is certainly an important aspect of finding joy, but expressing joy is really mm -hmm. where the magic happens, mm -hmm. right? And so this mm -hmm. ability to actively yes. show your peace, actively mm -hmm. show your joy and joy mm -hmm. in action is infectious, right? The, the energetic vibration right. around it is pretty infectious, but if someone is just having a belly laugh, like their stomach hurts, cheeks mm -hmm. hurt, you are like smiling. You don't even know what the <laughs> joke is about. You don't know why they're so happy, but you're just like smiling, looking at them. Because joy loves joy. And, yes. and, and what joy gives birth to is a freedom. Yeah. And so to go all the way back to where we started this conversation to talk about how did people of color survive some of the most atrocious of conditions? Because we still found joy, yes. which was our freedom amidst any kind of enslavement. And yes. what did folks hate the most about us was how did they still that joyful? <laughs> I always <laughs> related like the, the history of black, black and brown people in this country and in the world as the story of the Grinch who stole Christmas, right? Remember, he thought, I'm going to take all this stuff from them. Yeah, they're going to be miserable. <laughs> yeah, look for our yellow brothers and sisters and that makes sense. Yes, yes, yes. And then let's take all this stuff from them and they're going to be miserable when they wake up. And they woke up singing. They right. woke up joyful. And he was like, what? And it came without who has and do dads and roast feet. Yes, right. it did. Yes. Because the joy was their freedom. It wasn't in their possessions. And once he understood that, what did he find? My heart's three times larger. I, I am now seeing joy. We have had so many people actually kind of be living examples of that immediately. The person that came to mind was Nelson Mandela, you know, in prison mm -hmm. all those years. And to come out and not be bitter, not be angry. And the idea is, you know, I've got right. an inner peace and inner joy. You can imprison my physical body, but you can't imprison my spirit. You can't imprison right. my soul. Right. And the more people of privilege realize that, the more it actually angers them. Because privilege sounds joyful, but it actually is very burdensome. And it is the lack of joy. I will remember a white man in a workshop telling me, and we were friends. He said, I've been to any number of workshops with you and I love you. And I want to be this activist that you're telling me to be. Some of this stuff, I just don't know if I can do it. And I said, well, why not? He said, I actually don't know if I want to do it. Let me be clear. I said, well, why would you not? Why do you keep showing up at these workshops <laughs> if you don't want to dismantle the system? And he said, because the difference between you and I is that I don't know if I can function without the system. It's like, I got, you know, I'm, I'm fairly smart. I'm not the smartest person on earth, but I got a really good job. I'm not the most handsome man on the earth, but I got a really beautiful wife. Great kids. I love the car I drive. I know that I'd have any of those things if I didn't have white privilege. You know, you will have everything without it because you got everything I got without the system backing you. Well, If I dismantle this system, I don't know what I actually can do. That makes me feel so much empathy and compassion. <laughs> and so you see the pushback, right? Yeah. That's where the pushback comes from is the yeah. uncertainty of, and that's the insinuation that really upsets them is the insinuation is, I got what I got because the system gave it to me, not because I earned it. And if I believe that, then that means I am not as smart or as powerful or as competent as I have led myself to believe. And if I trace that down the rabbit hole, 
then it means that I am nothing without this system, but I was taught that I was everything. That cognitive dissonance makes them while out. It's the absence of joy because joy comes from, I know who I am. I know what I got. I know what I could get with what I got. And there's nothing you got that's better than what I got, no matter how you feel about it, because this is how I feel about it. Right. right? That's joy. Well, I have to give that. I hadn't contemplated that perspective because I, I know that uncertainty is scary. And I guess the opposite of the message that for those who who trade in that idea, because there are a lot of people who enjoy the privilege who mm-hmm. haven't thought about it that deeply, and they don't necessarily, you know, view their existences as having been privileged because they don't drive a nice car and they don't have a big right. house and they're not right. married. They've been cheated right. on, and they're like, "What are you mm-hmm. talking about?" Mm-hmm. So I think for that demographic, I that's probably not as much of an issue. But to your point about those who may be in power who harbor those kinds of ideas, I guess that would be a scary thought. Like, what would it be like if everything was equitable? Right. And well, and for those who have, to your point, who have a lot less than that gentleman had, you know, what privilege has taught them is you may be this far beneath me, but there's still somebody beneath you. So feel good at least about that. (laughs) Right. And that was a part of the you know, to your point earlier, that was a part of the indoctrination because there was a time early in that civil rights movement where there was unity among people. Right. Of color. And right. the idea was, you know, the wealthy and those who were in power thought, well, my gosh, that's just way too many of them. We need to create some segregation and division here. Mm-hmm. And if we have them distracted with that, then we can continue redlining and gerrymandering and reaching to district lines and insisting on on ID to vote and yeah that's right that's right and we're living that playbook again right now right Right. look at the way politics are dividing communities of color along class lines right that is exactly the playbook yeah well Rodney I have deeply enjoyed our conversation today as always always love talking to you I appreciate your being so generous with your time and your energy and your insights and wisdom and perspectives. Mm -hmm. I also want to take the opportunity to thank the listeners who've been on this journey with us today. And I hope that something that we've discussed today has given them something to think about in terms of igniting or enhancing their own personal joy, their own sense of personal connection and peace. I love that connection with joy and peace. And I'm going to include Dr. Glasgow's website information in the show notes. So visit the show notes if you'd like to learn more about the phenomenal work he's doing in this diversity, inclusion, and equity space. And until next week, I want to encourage everybody to continue to be joyfully you, full of joy, fully you.